Welcome to another episode of Close Talking. I am your co-host, Connor McNamara-Stratton. And I am your other co-host, Jack Rossiter-Munley. And together with Connor, we are two dudes with one love of poetry. And we get together to talk about poems. That's literally all we do. That's all I do, anyway. You do other things, but... It's most of what I do. Yeah. I'm pretty much just reading poems every day, all the time. Sometimes I slip in a short story or two, I gotta be honest. <laughs> Fair enough. Fair enough. Can't hold, can't hold that against you. Uh, the basic format of the show is that we read a poem, we talk about it, and then we read the poem again. And today, usually one of us picks the poem. Today, we sort of both settled on a poet, and then Connor was kind enough to whittle out a poem for us to discuss. So it's like kind of a Connor pick, but it's like three quarters Connor, one quarter me, and a whole <laughs> lot of back and forth in between, I guess. We'll call it a co-pick. It's a co-pick. It's a co-pick. So we got a great poem and poet. Um, the poet is Eduardo Corral, who is someone that we have both, I think, wanted to uh, talk about for a long time. Um, he is sort of most known for his debut poetry collection, um, which is amazing. It's called Slow Lightning. Um, it came out in 2012, and it won the... Um, Yale Younger Poets Prize, which is basically the most prestigious uh, debut prize um, that you can get, period. Uh, lots of um, John Ashbery won, uh, I think Muriel Reichheiser won, Donald Hall, uh, lots, of, lots of the giants now uh, sort of got their start here. I, there's a blog that's that has a nice sort of excerpt about uh, Corral and his work. It's Yale Books Unbound, um, and it's like blog.yalebooks.com. The title of the post is Slow Lightning and Eduardo Corral, Yale's First Latino Younger Poet. So I thought I'd sort of just read from that. Corral's subject matter is weighty. His poems deal with Mexican-American border politics, AIDS, and broader themes of identity, erotics, and family connection. Yet his poetry is not easily summarized. Carl Phillips, um, who had selected him, he was the judge uh, for the Poets Prize, and he's also an amazing poet, um, said this about the book um, and explained how Corral's distinctive bilingual style because there's, there's lots of his poems that have English and Spanish sort of together in one, um, is just one symptom of the way the poet resists reductivism. Gay, Chicano, illegal American, that's all just language. And part of Corral's point is that language, like sex, is fluid and dangerous and thrilling. Now a cage, now a window out. Which think I like a lot and also I think is relevant to uh, the poem that we picked very cool that's a yeah. great description of his work I like that yeah um, yeah and it really ties into this poem which uh, we're discussing which is called sentence and it's a more recent one it was published in poetry magazine in 2016 um, so 
sort of several years after Slow Lightning came out. And I thought it would be interesting to, I don't know, pick a sort of more recent work of his and sort of think about that. Yeah, so we'll sort of dive into um, everything after the poem. And I think for now, I'll just read it. So this is Sentence after Don McKay. I crawl back. He unpacks his tools, oils the wooden handles, rinses the metal, fragrant. His thighs fragrant, his sneer. Coy and eternity inked on his skin, an ecstatic blue of bewildered green. Some wounds are ovals, some wounds are opals. The ears of a white wolf pivot toward the moon. I flee now and then, alone in the desert for months a nomad in a kimono of pressed-together dust. Beautiful his throat, his words even more beautiful. It's my turn to ask for a bit more from you. He likes it when I bleed, strangers once. Gently he hammers gold into a sentence. Gently the sentence enters me. What a cool poem. I know it's so interesting. Let's uh, so let's say a little bit about who Don McKay is. Who is this Don McKay fella anyway? <laughs> uh, so Don McKay uh, is a Canadian poet um, who's sort of an older of an older generation. He is about seventy two now, I think, or seventy four. Seventy five. So or seventy five. There we go. Seventy two, seventy four, seventy five. But definitely seventy five. He's, yeah, he has 12 books of poetry, um, and notably in 2007, he won the Griffin Prize for his book, Strike Slip. And the Griffin Prize is probably the biggest poetry prize in Canada. Um, it's sort of up there with the Pulitzer or the National Book. Um, and one description, I'm not too familiar uh, with his work, but one sort of characterization of his work um, is, quote, a poet with a patient eye, an acute arresting ear, overflowing with details of ornithology, botany, weather, industry, books, and music, nuanced descriptions, philosophical phrasing, focusing idiom, madcap humor, and elegy. So that's maybe not what Corral uh, sort of has found about his work, but I had uh, found a YouTube video, which we will link to, um, where Edward, Eduardo Corral is uh, reading this poem, Sentence, um, which is at, I think, the bookstore Desperate Literature. And before the piece, he sort of was contextualizing it and said that uh, Don McKay was sort of one of his um, sort of favorite contemporary writers at the moment. Um, and he had sort of said that I think that he was saying this about McKay's poetry, that it's characterized as often like an aftermath of being in love with someone who cannot provide that same kind of love for you. Um, and then as sort of a lead into this poem, he had said that a lot of his speakers 
are sort of filled or consumed by um, desire or lust or uh, yearning. Um, and the question is like, what do you do with that? Um, anyway. Very interesting. I also know one of McKay's big concepts is that of poetic attention, which he uses to describe the moment before actually putting pen to paper and creating poetry, which is the way that one must be in the world to notice it in a poetic fashion. Hmm. And he discusses that at some length. That is very interesting. That is very important. So let's take this contextual knowledge, this extra textual information, and let's look at the text of the poem itself. Let's talk about that he. Who do you think the he is, and what does the he, his do for you in this poem? Yeah, well, that is a great question. So, I mean, I think it is obviously not uh, sort of on the surface evident who the he is. So there's uh, Corral, I think, is allowing for multiple readings. Um, but based on the way he introduced the poem uh, at that bookstore, it makes me think that, okay, I have two sort of ideas. One is uh, that the he is, a, is a, a man that he has had in a relationship or a sort of romantic relationship with um, who uh, he loves more than, for some reason, than the he loves Corral or the speaker of Corral's poem. Um, and I sort of get that in the, in the pieces. So I crawl back. And then there's the moment um, I flee now and then. Uh, and that, that, we can talk more about that later, but briefly that makes me think of this guy who he loves is kind of like always there, but not really like giving him that much. And so the speaker is sort of like um, consumed and sometimes can't help himself but crawl back to this, to this man. Um, but sometimes then realizes that he needs to be alone because it's not healthy or whatever. Um, then the other idea is I think that this poem is loosely describing the speaker getting a tattoo, uh, which I'm sort of getting from, so there's this that begins, he unpacks his tools, oils the wooden handles, rinses the metal. Uh, so there's some kind of tools that the he is like preparing for something. Um, and then the, um, you see that the, the guy has tattoos on his skin, coy and eternity inked on his skin. Um, and then there's kind of the, there's a lot of attention on wounds and sort of bleeding, which makes me think about there's obviously multiple resonances, but one, tattooing is sort of wounding your body and it bleeds a little bit as you put the ink into your skin. And so I was thinking that at the end, um, he likes it when I bleed and then gently hammers gold into a sentence. Gently, the sentence enters me, um, as is in some way a literal description of perhaps getting a tattoo of a sentence sort of into your skin. And so then the tools, I sort of reread the poem, and then the tools I sort of made sense as some kind of tattooing tools. 
Definitely. And there's sort of equal attention in the poem to material tools and not all at once, but a lot of colors are called out. There's blue, green, white, and gold. And the combination of tools and colors does lend to, to that atmosphere, if nothing else. Uh, so I'm curious. Yes. I have my own additional thoughts, um, though. I really like that reading, and I think it's probably spot on in terms of artistic intention. I'm curious what you think adding the line after Don McKay adds to the poem. Aside from a reading by Eduardo Corral, introducing it with the extra textual information, what do you think that does to the poem about either a relationship of unequal love or a tattooing? Okay, I have two thoughts now. One Ready. is boring, one is more interesting, but perhaps less plausible. Love it. The boring thought is oftentimes there's just a convention when you sort of feel that your poem is like particularly influenced by another poet or responding to a particular poem or set of poems by that poem, you kind of, you can just put after this poet um, as a kind of just nod to their influence. Uh, so that's my boring thought, which I do think that is in part what's happening. The other thought that I was thinking about when you were talking is that this could also be describing the relationship a writer has with the reader, the, the writers that he loves, kind of. Um, so if you, um, which actually makes, it makes a lot of sense. So it's like, there's a writer who's got all these poems, but they're not sort of like invested in you, they're just sort of sitting there, um, kind of in the way that a poor lover might be, who's not sort of giving you anything, but just like, there if you want it, there if you not. So the speaker crawls back to Don McKay's poetry, in a sense, um, but sometimes it's too much, and then flees. And then by the end, the sentence enters me is a kind of like a way of sort of literalizing an, an influence that another writer has. If you spend enough time with them, they're sort of language becomes a part of you. That's exactly where I went with it. And that's right. some of what I was thinking as I read the poem, which is a little bit, I think, specific to the circumstances in which I read the poem, which will date this podcast, but I'd like to go into just a little bit. I love uh, so there's specific lines that sort of got me into the headspace that led me to that aspect of the reading, which are the fact that it starts with the line, I crawl back. And then the line, some wounds are ovals, some wounds are opals. Uh, as most people have probably heard, Tom Petty died recently. I'm a huge fan of Tom Petty. It's a very sad time. He has a song titled Crawling Back to You, which in addition to the literal title also makes a lot of references to stuff like white wolves or deserts, not literally, but in, in the contours of the song, he's, in a bar fight and he's got a sidekick and there's a ranger and it's like kind of a Western feel, which I think this poem has sort of a desert feel to it. Aside from literally calling out the desert, there's a lot of imagery that points toward that natural world. Uh, and the line, 
some wounds are ovals, some wounds are opals, in its cadence and construction mirrors the opening line of one of my favorite Tom Petty songs, Walls, which is some days are diamond, some days are rock, which it turns out, I recently learned Tom Petty got that because Johnny Cash said it one time, which is pretty cool. Uh, and so it got me thinking about the relationship as you were describing between kind of a fan and an artist that you really admire the work of. And it is a relationship fundamentally of unequal love because I am nuts about Tom Petty and he never met me and never knew my name and conceptually may have cared about me as someone who liked his music and he got the royalties from the records I bought. But in the end, I went to that concert and he definitely didn't see me because I was in the cheap seats, you know? <laughs> and like, there's also, as you were describing, there's a permanence versus impermanence. So like, I am totally transitory in the experience of being Tom Petty. Tom Petty is a fixture of my existence. His music came into my life before he died and will be a part of my life long after he's died because it has had an impact on me as someone who plays music, but also just in how I think about the world. When I read this poem, his music starts playing in my head because it reminds me of him even though he's gone. Like that's kind of nuts and he'll never have that experience of me because I'm nothing to him, right? So I think there <laughs> is that complete and total imbalance and there's nothing wrong about it. There's nothing bad there, I don't think. It's just a function of how the world exists and how the people who influence us exist. You can read a, a writer who never lived during your lifetime and they fundamentally influence not only how you write, but they could influence how you see the world. The poems of Emily Dickinson, somebody could read them and it just like blows their mind and it totally contextualizes their experience, right? So that I was thinking of, uh, and particularly the end bit, which is in the literal sense, I think, a very poetic description of getting a tattoo. But if you think about a writer or a uh, musician, songwriter, gently he hammers gold into a sentence. I'm gonna keep going with Tom Petty for just a second because it fits. Uh, he described his own songwriting process. He described himself as being suspicious of it because usually ideas would just sort of come to him. And there's a lot of stories of him writing complete songs in like five or six minutes, barely stopping or pausing, just kind of it all came out. He famously free falling, I think his biggest selling song ever, he started just making up the words as a joke while mixing down another song with his producer at the time. Like there's a lot of, he was sort of an instinctual songwriter. So taking the, the gold in the air, the whatever conduit feeling as he described it, uh, he, he felt like he was sort of just tuned into something and it would happen to pass through him and he'd sort of get it down as soon as he could. Uh, hammers gold into a sentence, gently the sentence enters me. Pretty self-explanatory. I have now heard the music, that condensation of whatever he was thinking, feeling, experiencing, putting together uh, has come to me as the consumer of it and it is now a part of who I am. And so that vein that runs through this poem, which I do think is what is pointed to and what the addition of after Don McKay puts as an undercurrent to everything else happening in the poem is 
a lot of where I went with not necessarily my reading of it, but the component of the reading that ended up resonating the most with me. Because I do think that the primary reading is the one that you laid out. Um, but I think the genius of the poem is that by putting in that after Don McKay, it does put this whole other current of meaning and context over this story of uneven love and getting a tattoo. Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. Um, I think that's right on. And yeah, and also the fact that the he remains sort of only a he and sort of lives in a sort of a historical or at least ambiguously historical space allows the reader to interpret that in many different ways, possibly at the same time. Um, I, yeah, N one sort of other reference that, again, I don't know if Corral was thinking of, but seems just struck me, uh, is at the end of the William Butler Yeats's Sailing to Byzantium, uh, in which the speaker is sort of imagining his death and going into Byzantium, this kind of like uh, sort of pagan uh, afterlife. Um, the last section, he says, once out of nature, I shall never take my bodily form from any natural thing, but such a form as Grecian goldsmiths make of hammered gold and gold enameling to keep a drowsy emperor awake, or set upon a golden bough to sing to lords and ladies of Byzantium of what is past or passing or to come. Hammered gold. Anyway, another kind of uh, use of gold as uh, sort of the poetic material. Um, Yeats is thinking about being basically a bard to the Byzantium lords of the afterlife. Yeah. I love that. that I, that's really cool. Yeah. Uh, so. I like that you pointed out that the he remains ahistorical because this whole poem feels like it's drifting in some liminal space between having a tattoo and not having a tattoo, being in the desert and not being in the desert, trying to construct something out of man-made tools and also existing in an entirely natural world. It feels very much like it's sort of drifting and floating, which is interesting to me, given that the title of it is Sentence, which usually is a closed off chunk of writing starts with a capital letter, ends with a period, it's defined and definitive and clear. But I like that the poem resists that kind of constraint. Yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, it's a very interesting rhythm and style. And it's there's so many, there's so many fragments, as you say. Um, and I was sort of noticing one sort of recurring pattern is this kind of repetition in twos of many things in the poem. So uh, in the third line, we have fragrant his thighs, fragrant his sneer. So there's a double of fragrant, um, but still just very fragmented. And then the rhythm seems to be a double in uh, the fourth to fifth line, an ecstatic blue, a bewildered green. Uh, although those are slightly different, that sort of cadence is the same, like, an adjective color, an adjective color. 
Um, some wounds are oval, some wounds are opal. Beautiful, his throat, his words, even more beautiful. Uh, gently, he hammers the sentence into gold. Gently, the sentence enters me. So gently and sentence both occur twice. Um, and so there's a, that's a kind of one feature that is sort of a sort of a consistent texture throughout where there's this sort of repetition in twos. Um, often there's an uneasy contrast. Well, it's just interesting. Sometimes like I just love this, uh, that line, the third line, fragrant his thighs, fragrant his sneer. Um, so we get that kind of, I think that sort of desire, that lust um, that Corral was talking about and that sort of Carl Phillips had described his work as with the fragrance, especially of his thighs. But then you also get the sneer that comes after, which seems like so different um, and contemptuous of the speaker. Um, and yet equally fragrant as the thighs. That contemptuous tone comes back again later a little bit when he says he likes it when I bleed. Seems pretty nasty. But yeah. it also at that point is coming into the literal tattooing, which when you do tattoo with a tattoo gun, there's some blood you have to wipe away as you do it. So I don't know if the tattoo artist likes that, but it's an indication that tattooing, the tattooing is working. So. It's a good thing at that point, but it's pretty crappy to have that in a relationship. Yeah, yeah, no, there's a there's a, a desire for pain or an enjoyment of pain or some kind of negative desire there. Um, and also there's another ecstatic blue, a bewildered green. Those two colors seem that ecstasy on the one hand and bewilderment on the other hand. Um, and that seems to be, and then there's like ovals and opals, uh, which is an interesting, I wasn't exactly, so it obviously works because of the sound of it. Ovals is very close to opals. Opal, we have another nice color, like a deep blue. Um, and oval maybe uh, has a kind of, maybe the needle point ink is kind of circly or ovally. Um, but I, that, that sort of contrast between the two was a little less clear for me. Um, but yeah. And then I do think that also the doubleness also then reflects the larger structure of I crawl back and then I flee now and then, uh, where this, there's this coming back and then a fleeing, but it's not also it's it's fleeing, but it's now and then, which is kind of undercutting the flight. It's sort of I don't know. It even in the fleeing, it sort of indicates that he's always going to crawl back later. There's a kind of defeatedness even in the in the fleeing. So those were that was some texture. I think that I think sort of captures that floatiness that you were talking about. Um, the way that the words are repeating, but but in such a fragmented way that um, it's hard to tell where it's progressing. Um, and then I think 
And I'm curious to know what you think about these lines. The other part is that there are some turns, some imagistic turns that are so sharp and sort of out of nowhere uh, that really throw you for a loop, I think. Um, the, the main ones, I think, for me are the ears of a white wolf pivot toward the moon. I guess that's the main one. And then, but then the images, I sort of understand how it comes after fleeing, but alone in the desert for months, and then the line, a nomad in a kimono of pressed together dust. Uh, those seem to be images that are sort of large, at least sort of like textural or connotative departures from, from the scene that we've been sort of floating in. They are also lines that stuck out to me. I think partially because they are so concrete in their imagery, they're giving you a clear idea of what you're looking at. And I think at least for the, the white wolf pivot toward the moon, it's setting you up to be outside for the desert line. I'm not totally sure where to go with them. They are where some of the most interesting and neat images and sounds in the poem come in. I think nomad in a kimono is really cool sounding. The oval opal combo and then the white ears of the wolf towards the moon. Oval and opal have the sound resonance, but also the, I was thinking about the, what the inside of wolf or I've got cats, cat ears kind of look like. And it's sort of that white, tufty fur that's very round and fluffy. It's sort of an oval of white fur. And then you have the round moon. And so you get all of these sound resonances, but also everything that's being described. Oval comes from ova, which is an egg, which is another round white object. Is just where I was going in my head with all of it real quick. And so there's all of these round sounding words. There's these round images, that whole two line bit was just a big round white blob in the middle of the poem. <laughs> that was really cool <laughs> to me anyway. Yeah. Um, and then he's going to hit me with a nomad in a kimono. And I'm just like, what? That's the cool. How have I never thought of nomad kimono before? That's an amazing combination of words. Whoa. It called back to the koi and eternity inked on his skin, which made me think it's maybe the tattoo artists tattoo of a Japanese style rendering of a koi fish, which would hint toward nomad in a kimono kind of imagistically, I guess. But I don't know. I don't really know. What are your thoughts on that? Yeah, no, those are great thoughts. Um, yeah, it that's a lot of what I was thinking. Um, that made me think that ears, and this is just pure extrapolation, but as sort of holes in the body are kind of wound-like, um, which feels sort of appropriate, especially when we get to the end with the sentence enters me, where there's a kind of, uh, you know, if someone's saying a sentence, that's going to enter you through the ear. I have to give credit to Jane Tompkins for this insight, but in discussing why Western heroes are so taciturn, she makes the point that to speak, you have to open your mouth, which is opening an entry point into your body. And so even in speaking a sentence, 
you are opening up hmm. literally. That is fascinating. I like that. I also liked the verb pivot. It felt slightly meta to me where this is a leading up to a turn in the poem where first we had an extended I crawl back and then we're in that scene and then we pivot and then it's I flee now and then. So then we're apart and we're alone. And so as the ears are pivoting, the poem is sort of preparing to pivot as well. Um, I like that a lot. That's really cool. You're right. And also just as a biographical context, Corral is from Arizona and so, and Slow Lightning, the desert features prominently um, in, in the landscape. Yeah, and yeah, I just, yeah, Nomad, that line is just a, a zinger. Um, nomad in a kimono of pressed together dust, which is Ooh. just, I mean, pressed together dust, what is, I mean. <sighs> it's so like, good. Yeah, so we get dust, so it's sort of like the, you know, that the remnant flecks of the earth that no one cares about, that also might deteriorate, um, that have just been, I was just imagining like you had a vat of dust and then you just compress it, you know, to so that somehow it bonds by the sheer force of your compression. Um, that then would make a kimono, which is sort of like, you know, elegance, non-parel or whatever. It's, it's very cool because he describes in those two lines, basically those are the only two lines where the speaker is alone, um, where he has fled. And the rest of the poem, he's floating somewhere around this he. Um, and yet he manages to stick so many different connotative words in that really make the experience of being alone in this context very complex um, where he flees now and then so we already get this sense of well it's never going to be a permanent flight or it's something that he does from time to time um, and then we have this alone in the desert for months so it's just desolate um, then we have a nomad wandering um, solitary um, but then a kimono has, I mean, the sounds are obviously great of nomad and kimono, as we pointed out, but a kimono also has, um, it has that Japanese resonance, obviously, that maybe connects to the koi. I was thinking about that as well. Um, but it also has a sort of an intimacy or to it. It's a very open flowing garment. Yes, very open flowing. Yes. Um, yeah, so and often very formal um i think maybe not traditionally formal i think in the west we don't necessarily take that seriously yeah in the west for, I right, feel or, like... for right or wrong in the west i think the kimono is a little different it tends yeah. to kind of take the place of a bathrobe right <laughs> an elegant bathrobe right um, which is like maybe not great but is definitely the case for a lot of people who wear them, I think. Yeah. The West definitely fucked up again in that regard. 
damn it. Um, Just but, every time. Every time. <laughs> hey, what's the worst thing you could do? Oh, you did it already. Great. Cool. <laughs> again next time. Oh, yeah, fucked it. Yeah, I fucked up. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it either has a, it's very flowing. It either has a sort of traditional formal, um, connotation or a sort of intimate, uh, more casual bathrobe connotation, depending on where we're coming at it. Um, but certainly not what you think of a nomad and gets at, I think this kind of being alone, it's like both feels both austere and sensuous for some reason kimonos i don't know um and then the pressed together dust just seems the fleetingness of this all this thing and also the poverty of the situation um that the speaker is in a kimono trying to make something of this solitude uh but the materials to make that solitude are just dust that trying to force together with sheer brute force. Um, Could also be some sort of getting at the idea that maybe you're naked in the desert and the kimono pressed together dust is just a wall of dust that obscures you for a, a period of time. I, that, I got that image a little bit when I first read through it as well. Um, but you're totally right. I like that you point out that the usage of kimono brings in that the austere formality, but also the nature of the garment is to be open and flowing. And so it does have that clash in what it connotes, which is really cool. Yeah. That's definitely right about just dust being in the desert blowing around everywhere. <laughs> yeah. And it's pressed together by the wind to form a, an obscuring yeah. cloud basically around you, which could be the, the kimono in, in which you are wreathed. Um, I, I want to take an educational side note. This is a great example of a wonderful image because the image of pressed together dust is once a precise sort of way of thinking about a phenomenon that happens in the, in the world, in the desert of dust flowing everywhere, combining, covering you, um, and also has sort of the figurative connotations that the poem wants emotionally. Um, and so if you can have, if you're a fellow poet, if your images can sort of both work in the, the literal description that they're trying to refer to and depict, and also carry that um, emotional weight uh, and sort of extra figurative connotations, that's like gold. That's gold mine. Um, I just have one quick thing before we wrap up. I don't know if you have anything else. As I am sitting looking at this poem, so for those of you who are not visually observing the poem at the moment, we encourage you to do that. There'll be a link in the show notes so you can find it. Um, but many of the lines are fractured, basically. It looks like you pressed the tab key in the middle of them. There's many lines that are just text on a line, but most of the lines of the poem are split in this way. And you can read through two different poems if you read just the split lines, uh, just the left side or just the right side, along with the lines that only have one line on them. Whoa. And it works. And I don't know if this was intended, but it is so cool. Um. 
Should we read it again? Let's read it again. All right. This is Sentence after Don McKay. I crawl back. He unpacks his tools, oils the wooden handles, rinses the metal. Fragrant. His thighs, fragrant. His sneer. Coy and eternity inked on his skin, an ecstatic blue, a bewildered green. Some wounds are ovals, some wounds are opals. The ears of a white wolf pivot toward the moon. I flee now and then, alone in the desert for months, a nomad in a kimono of pressed together dust. Beautiful his throat, his words even more beautiful. It's my turn to ask for a bit more from you. He likes it when I bleed. Strangers once. Gently he hammers gold into a sentence. Gently the sentence enters me. Very nice. Cool. All right. Sweet. We've done it again. That does it for this episode of Close Talking. Thank you so much for listening. If you want to stay up to date on the latest Close Talking news or find old episodes, be sure to check out iTunes, Stitcher, or SoundCloud, where you can subscribe to Close Talking. You can also find us on Facebook at facebook.com slash close talking, or on Twitter at Jack Rossiter Munn for me, at Hot Sauce Boxed for Connor, and at Close Talking for the show. If you have thoughts on this conversation, different readings of this poem, or any of the other poems we've discussed, or if you have suggestions for poems that you'd like us to talk about in the future, please send us an email at closetalkingpoetry at gmail.com.